Okay, we are doing our day 89 of the 100 Days of Colin. Um, thanks for joining the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Once again, uh, we are just going to wrap the last part of this, uh, this afterward titled The Choice Before Us from the Authoritarian Moment, How the Left Weaponized America's Institutions Against Dissent by one Ben Shapiro. I did want to open the room for discussion afterwards because there's an argument right now that <clears throat> between legal conformance, which is basically obeying the law, or getting a company to comply with obeying the law and regulatory conventions, and then there's le- there's like conformance, that's legal conformance, okay, and then compliance is where the company develops its own policies which are legally binding because the employees have to agree to the policies contracts have to agree to the policies and more or less it's kind of like a civil matter but that's how a lot of the um, workaround for legal like if you consent to doing something according to a contract you have to comply with the contract. So that's how a lot of people have been built out of, say, like their privacy rights because they agreed to these ridiculous contracts that are really bad and um, they end up in kind of like a one-sided agreement. So uh, compliance seems like it's a good deal. Uh, A lot of people talk up compliance when they work for an enormous company, uh, but it's not always legally conforming. So compliance and conformance are two different things. They don't have to be different, but they should be the same. Meaning like when you talk about compliance normally, people think about, you know, ethics and compliance. Like, oh, we're going to be doing good things on behalf of the company. It's going to be something where we, you know, straighten out and we're going to straighten up and fly right. But that's not necessarily so. It's just how the company enforces its own um, policy agenda within the company. That's how it has turned out, and that may or may not include legal conformance in the in the literal or most appropriate sense of the meaning of the words. So you can have kind of greenwashing in a company where they do things that that are kind of green, but they aren't actually green um, to to appease. It's a policy of appeasement to say shareholder activists who want more of that involvement in the company um, but they don't necessarily you know it's not necessarily legally impacting at all like you know up or down it's kind of like a neutral there's no law that says but if you do violate EPA you know if you violate the EPA regulatory environment you know you can you can get really whacked for that so you have to actually conform with the laws and the regulatory environment for EPA. So that gets into <clears throat> the strains of what most small businesses and, and even corporations start, you know, really duking it out with the government because they want to change the laws or the regulatory environment because it's overly strident or it's it's hurting their their um, the impact of their bottom line in a lot of ways that seem, you know, meaningless. There's a lot of meaningless conformance. So, I mean, there's just a lot of strictures and struggles and conflict in these areas. And so, you know, it it wouldn't even be worth talking about unless 
people were dealing with it every single stinking day. So and I know that they are. I know that they are dealing with it every day. So it's worth worth a discussion, absolutely. <clears throat> so let me go ahead and just wrap this this chapter from the authoritarian moment, the choice before us. So Americans can engage in the same tactics as the left when it comes from, to our most powerful institutions. We can withhold our money from Hollywood. We can refuse to shop at the wokest corporations. We can remove our endowments from authoritarian-run universities. We can stop subscribing to media outlets. We can pressure advertisers to stop spending their money there. We can pressure advertisers to stop spending their money there. <laughs> and uh, either these institutions will learn to tune out all the insanity, which they should, or they can remove themselves from the business of politics. And then there's the final option, building alternative institutions. At the Daily Wire, we call ourselves alternative media <clears throat> because that's what we want to be. A place for people who have been ignored by institutional media to access information they want to see. We're building up an entertainment wing to serve the needs of the Americans who are tired of being lectured about the evils of their non-woke politics. <clears throat> I am so sorry. So this is necessary because the authoritarian left hasn't just captured most of our institutions. They've closed the doors behind them. And it would be nice if real conservatives wrote regularly at the New York Times or the Atlantic. But that seems like a pipe dream. Exclusion is the order of the day. So in shutting the doors of our most powerful institutions, the authoritarian left has left out those outside with one option, build it ourselves. And the outcome, unfortunately, will be completely a completely divided America. We might patronize different coffee brands, wear different shoes, subscribe to different streaming services. Our points of commonality might disappear. That's not our preferred outcome, but it may be the most realistic outcome. Two separate Americas divided by politics. None of these options are mutually exclusive. In fact, all of them should be pursued simultaneously. Our institutions must be opened up again. If they aren't, the social fabric of the country will continue to disintegrate. So, for our children. These days I find myself worried for America on a bone-deep level. I grew up in an America that made room for different points of view, an America that could tolerate political differences. I grew up in an America where we could attend ball games together without worrying about who voted for whom, where we could attend different schools and recognize our differences without trying to beat each other into submission. I grew up in an America where we could make the occasional offensive joke and then apologize for it and not have to worry about our livelihoods being stolen because we all understood that we were human. And most of all, I grew up in an America where we could all participate in a search for truth without fear that the mere searching would end in our societal excommunication. That America is simply disappearing. And that scares me for my kids. I'm afraid by the time they become adults, they'll take their lack of freedom for granted. I'm afraid they'll already know not to speak out because they'll have seen too many others lose their heads for doing so. I'm afraid that they won't explore interesting and diverse ideas because to do so might mean social ostracizing or career suicide. It's my job to protect my kids from this authoritarian culture. But as the institutions of America mobilize against families like yours and mine, we lose options. What happens if my kids are required 
to reject my values, <clears throat> to dishonor their father and mother, a tradition they've been taught as a ticket to approve society. What happens if my kids are told they can't speak truth about the nature of the world? And what happens if I fight it back against the untruth? What happens if I lose my job tomorrow because the authoritarian mob puts a target on my back? Millions of Americans are asking these questions. Tens of millions. Most of us. That's the problem, but that's also the solution. The authoritarian moment relies on the acquiescence of a silent majority. We must no longer be silent. We must stand up to the institutional dominance of an intransigent minority of Americans. When we announce that our values matter, that our ideas matter, when we speak out together, recognizing diversity of our politics, but cherishing our common belief in the power of liberty, and the authoritarian moment finally ends, and a new birth of freedom begins. And that wraps the book. <clears throat> so, I'm going to go ahead and do a cattle call to the rest of the people. Let's see here. Invite some more people. And I see Nate here is with us. <clears throat> Nate may or may not want to call in. You know, you were certainly invited. I'll just go ahead and see if I can invite him. I'll invite him to speak. So what I hope to do during this episode is kind of point out like the the, the depth of limitations <clears throat> of conformance and compliance, which is boring, boring, boring stuff. But when people kind of bellyache about going back to work the next day, Everybody has to do compliance training, you know, every six months or some other thing that they've got to do. And DEI was in the tunnel about, I don't know, eight months, eight months ago. So here comes Nate. He's going to talk about some of this with us. So unmute your mic, Nate. <clears throat> oh, there he is. So William is now with us. Welcome, William. Uh, we're going to talk about conformance and compliance with some of this DEI stuff. So let's see here. I'm going to take the next caller. Go ahead, Nate. Can you speak? Let's see if your mic is unmuted. Let me see if we can get you to unmute your mic. As I, as I was saying, the uh, the compliance and conformance thing is a, is kind of like a dry uh, dry matter that everybody has to do. They have to check it off on their list of legal things to do. And um, <clears throat> these are entirely policies driven by the company. They put them together. They make contracts with their employees. And then they have to, you know, conform to the agreements that they set forward. It's the same with, say, Facebook or, you know, um, a licensing contract maybe you have with a software provider or anything, you know, anything really. So part of the compliance in larger corporations has included this DEI stuff, which does sometimes have these weird trainings. Now, 
the ones that are the most um, readily known about or kind of egregious are the public ones. Like, if you are a public employee, you know, there is, oh, hey, Philip, good to see you. So if you're a public employee who works for the government, you can't necessarily disobey anti-discrimination laws, like if they're openly discriminating, okay? And so discrimination really is discriminating. It says, I'm going to disafford you a job, a pension, some other, some other thing because of your creed, race, you know, nationality, anything like that. Okay, there, there are rules in public work that you can't do that. And you can't discriminate on politics in public work. So the fact that it's happening, you know, between political factions and the, using the DOJ is really alarming because that is secret police stuff that shouldn't be happening. Um, yeah. So, you know, and both, both sides, you know, Republicans and Democrats have done this in the past. Um, so there should have been more, take, more actions taken to kind of shore it up so that they don't do that to one another. But over the years, since li- civil liberties have been eroded, each, each revolution of power that's come into the seats have kind of chosen to make a master class out of, <laughs> out of oppressing the other one because, the, you know, as a, as a legendary game of kind of get back. And that's not really what should be happening. What they should be doing is complying with anti-discrimination laws. That's what they should be doing in the, in the public sphere. But <clears throat> when corporations get political, that's that results in the translation of something called fascism. So, Nate, is your mic working? Can you hear me all right? Kind of send me an emoji if you're if you're actually able to to talk. I just okay because it doesn't it doesn't I can't really hear you speaking if you're trying to speak. You just might be you just might be in there. So <clears throat> so what I wanted to to really get to is that um is that when corporations start to function like the government, which is what fascism is, when the corporations start to function like the government, they want to discriminate based on politics. They watch the politicians be able to make a legal pass or a legally passable environment where that can happen and where it's non-enforceable and then they take their cues from there. So okay, Nate, let's try one more time. Unmute that mic. How are we doing? Oh, yeah! (laughs) All right. (laughs) Welcome to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. So we've been talking about legal conformance and compliance. So do you have a compliance experience you'd like to share? Um, so I think I've been relatively fortunate. Uh, I, I'm an independent distributor for my company. So oh, okay. which, has, which has pros and cons, you know, there's, uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a W2, I'm a 1099. So because of that, I think I've been spared um, from maybe more of the compliance. Now, there is still compliance related stuff. Like every, I've been with my current company now for 12 years and every year 
I've had mm-hmm. to do the same compliance, the same, uh, the same type of thing that talks about these situations in an office environment that I don't really work in, where um, you know such and such has not given somebody a promotion. You know, I mean, very clearly. You know, to me, this is just to me. They're so obvious, right? There's, it's so, it's so obvious. And, and, and what's obvious? Is, what what well, about it is obvious? The obvious. The obvious part is, you know, we know, I mean, I think it's, to me, it it almost goes without saying that if you have grown up in our modern Western environment, that racism is bad, that you don't, that you don't, that you don't deny people a promotion. You don't deny them an opportunity because of their race, their gender, their ethnicity, their national origin, like. Or the religion, you know, you're not supposed religion. to do that. Yeah, you shouldn't Absolutely. be doing that. Actually, that's, that's, that's a great, that's a great point. I think the real, and you know, that now that you've mentioned it, I think we're, while we're so, um, I think we're hit over the head with, with race and gender these days and ethnicity, mm-hmm. but I think religion is one of those things that it's, it's been, it's been ignored. And it, it, I think these days, because it's seen, you know, when you hear about religion as a whole, how many people are practicing um, you know, it's always that, oh, the numbers are dropping, fewer and fewer people attend church. And I think there's been sort of a subtle, uh, there's been a subtle uh, overstep where people kind of assume, well, that's not really popular, as popular. It's waning, so we don't really have to respect it in the same way that we would ethnicity or gender or, hmm. or, or these things that are on the left. That's, I mean, I don't. I don't know if anybody would have how many people would have the guts to actually say that, but that's kind of my feeling. And and actually, uh, I mean, at this point in my life, well, here's what I'm going to say is that is that religion or religious protections is a First Amendment provision. There's provisions of First Amendment protections. Now it's constantly warring. There's a warring environment, I think, against all. First Amendment activity that would be public speech, that would be practice of freedom of religion, that would be practice of freedom of the press, that would be I was, you know I was all just of them listening. I was I don't know if uh, Russell Brand uh, is somebody that you listen to at all or Matt Taibbi, but both of them had a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was Brand was interviewing Taibbi and. It was just, it was very, very refreshing because Russell Brand is not a typical, he's not a journalist. He's not thought of as a journalist, but the role that he is playing nowadays, I would argue, is one that's closer to real journalism than, than many other actual news networks are, are doing nowadays because he is, he's neither <clears throat> left nor right, but I think, uh, it's, it's I think he's, he's a that, moderate, moderate, reasonable person who who sees things um, plainly, and he he's, he speaks things directly. He's a direct speaker, and I think that that's those people are under under a tremendous fire. Uh, if you just are kind of normal and, and speak your mind normally, that's that's become a, a rare creature. You become a rare rarefied creature for just because... saying what you can see plainly. Because you're not, because the expectation is to conform, the expectation is to go along with whatever the uh, 
and it's really it's a not so silent minority it's not mm-hmm. a silent majority it's a not so silent minority which i believe we're actually hearing from so because people are afraid people don't want to lose their jobs they don't want to lose uh their uh, you know they don't want to lose their livelihood right, right. And, and that keeps people quiet and i think nowadays more than more than in a in a very long time mm-hmm. i think that's having a very i mean you see it within uh well it's it's not just within journalism i think it's within mm-hmm. everyday life and... right right and and this authoritarian moment was a really important book to read especially this this rx or this prescriptive and the afterward because this is an intransigent minority who are making all of these sudden decisions within the corporate environment um it's an intransigent minority in the shareholder community and they are presumed leftist but they're what they are is they're they're fascist okay if, if we're I, I really going to be if we're going to be totally honest uh they are corporatist that want to run the government the way they run the corporations and or vice versa they want it they want an interchangeable freeway between right. corporation and government they want to run the well, government and the government wants to be able to run the corporations and you know when the simpatico is kind of seamless they seem to be the most comfortable because they can create monopolies and they can get the government's business and that's that's working out for them quite well and, and they can fatten themselves that way the the reason i think that is too the reason mm-hmm. that so many people are are going along with it who traditionally wouldn't have is i think a lot of that corporate sphere of influence is now located in places like the bay area mm-hmm. they're located in places that are culturally very very they're just very Leftist. left and, yeah and and so people who you who traditionally people on the left were anti-authoritarian you know they were against such things and um and now we're kind of seeing this this uh indifference from people on the left they're either they're either for it or mm-hmm. they're just more than willing not to say anything and and a lot of people who are friends of mine who have grown up with are are all too silent they're just silent and and they're they're not willing to really speak up because i think their fear i think the fear on the left is that anything to the contrary is uh, is one more step in the right direction and, and you know for what Trump they this is office. i'm i'm going to break in Nate and I, I just need to tell you that there's a there's a strong number of people on on Colin specifically who are people who are disenfranchised among the left so there's friendly fire there and Matt Taibbi well, and is a true. casualty Grant, Glenn Greenwald is a casualty Naomi Wolf's a casualty these are people who are traditionally allied with the progressive left and were considered in, in, in you know, in their ranks. These are well, intellectuals the that have just kind of, they've been scaled away by non-conforming corporate, corporatism, okay? And so the corporatism uh, prescriptive in this book, now, he's, he's made fantastic points um, about what to do. But what I wanted to, to say about it was that um, this intransigent minority was defeated in the Washington state. And he, he cited an example where basically uh, decent people, thinking people, people their reasoning um, to, to get in 
re- relied on their reasoning to to do science, to do um, to do professional things that were neutral, professionally neutral, like like delivering a result. Um, they spoke up for reason. They spoke up for normalcy. They spoke up for like we're not going to allow this anti-normative squeaky wheel to take you know normative reason away from the rest of us so there needs to be some bravery there just needs to be some casual bravery you need to have a like if this was a office kibbutz then what you would do is you would go to your reasonable employees your moderate employees employees with kids employees with 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 normal obligations, you know, they're, they're not political normally. And you just say, listen, this is not reasonable. This is not normal. It's not reasonable. And, uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense. We have to say, no, we have to push back a little bit because there are some, there are some cracks in the wall. You're what you're saying reminds me of what just happened Mm -hmm. with the Washington post Mm -hmm. and, uh, the journalist whose name is now escaping me. Um, Maybe who, it was Taylor Lorenz, I think. It was you know, Taylor, or... yeah, it was Taylor Lorenz. So she makes this, uh, I'm sorry, one of her uh, coworkers, a very accomplished journalist, makes a, a, you know, like an off-color joke, right? Right. She gets, uh, and she just goes on a one-woman tirade against him. Um, and, you know, this, so far Maybe beyond, right, him, him apologizing... But ultimately, right, make a long story short, what happened was uh, the higher-ups did, in fact, side with, uh, you know, with the employee who had made the off-color joke for no other – I think it was for no other reason than Taylor Lorenz, Lorenz was being so egregious. I mean, she was unsatiable – or insatiable, excuse me, uh, well, relative I, to – what she was doing was she was introducing uh, the practice of, of struggle shaming yeah. normal people, like the right. journalist taking taking aim at a, at a normal person as a target and making that news. And, and, and that's why it was kind of a role reversal. The the and that's why it was so incendiary what she was doing because. News agencies should not be stalking readers and telling them how to live editorially. They should publish editorials from a variety of different viewpoints representing the community and allowing the consumer to do whatever they like. That is the role of the press. That is the role of a traditional free press. What has started happening was a complete and total perversion, they started becoming free-basing or free-range, free you know, vigilante police that go out into the community and saying, I am the popo now. You shall do according to me, or you shall be shamed, and I will shame you because I can find you in this computer, and I'll employ a hacker, and I will do this and I will do that, little normal person, and now it's 1984, and now we make an example of you. One of the most insidious ways that has happened, I think, is with this ESG score. I think uh, that the uh, that publicly traded companies are now 
graded by, I believe, BlackRock. Oh, yeah, it's been getting quite a lot of news lately, yes. And, and it's, to me, that is like, that's just one of the, just, it's a great example, but it's, it's really, I mean, it's hard to step out of where we're in right now, but if you can just imagine that uh, the content that companies make is no longer being driven by what their consumers want, and that's, that is just, I mean, that's, a, it's, it's unbelievable if you think about it. It's unbelievable yeah. that, that the content is not driven by what the people, the customers. This can be explained. Nate, want. Nate, I have a, an absolutely, because you are now the product. Media has completely become, it's become its own consumer. They've become their own serfdom farms okay the organization of money and business modeling is predatory okay they've completely become engaged in the anti-privacy rigmarole which means that you me and anyone who engages in an online conflict will generate eyeballs and advertising clicks the only people in that ecosystem that actually you know the, the that exchange money are the ones who are paying for data. They're paying for looks. Okay, you're a product, I'm a product, anybody using the service, the consumer is a product. Okay, so the organization of, of you being someone who goes to them for news, irrelevant. That's not the model. That's not where the business side, that's not where the money comes from. The money comes from you. Right. Right, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting and that that's a that's a very uh, that explanation makes a lot of sense, right? Like when yeah. people wonder why why how could it be like this? Well, the only the only way it could be like that is if you don't matter because you aren't the customer because you're the product, right? Yes, yes, and and yeah. see, this is why the privacy law organization reorganization. Um, you know, they're, they're adding the regulatory environment right now, but what's most important is that the Securities and Exchange Commission gets involved in your data ownership. Because when you own yourself, you can command license over who sees and owns your data or transits or transfers your data. Okay, because right now there's a who's, – who's calling the price for your data right now? Is it you? Is it you? Well, it's certainly not. No, it's okay. It's no, people, and no one brought you one. into a room and said, "Hey, Nate, how would you like to price point your own data in the BRICS system?" That would be Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Nobody, nobody did that. And you know what? I never got that call either. So, and I wrote something about it called "Privacy is a Spider," and where I explained it ad nauseum. And so. When you have this environment that is, you know, dependent on a completely predatory act where you have been actively excluding, that is called price fixing. Okay, and the fact that there is a collusion within our government who is, you know, actively kleptocratic. Let's just let's just not deny this anymore. Okay, it's actively kleptocratic. They are profiting from this. They are profiting from Facebook. They are profiting from the tech companies. Okay, but there is an there is an insurgency. Who sees what's going on? And it, it's untenable. You know, the children are killing themselves off because of the way we do media, and media isn't media. It is just a, a way of people kind of 
bombing the other side and disrupting society in context of, of arguments that don't make any sense anymore. It's disrupting when I say it's not positive disruption either, you know, where people are like, oh, well, let's just shake things up. Let's shake up the corporate environment. No, that's not, not, that's not what's going on. Now the corporations actually believe that with this small communitarian contingency that is green involved somehow, I mean, it's just, it's just got a green coat on it. It's communism with a green coat on it. Let's not, you know, and it, it's like five people who are communists with a green coat, okay? And they're called progressive lefties today, but, you know, they can, they can throw off the green coat tomorrow and put on a different coat. Okay, tomorrow it'll be Google wearing a brown coat <laughs> and a brown shirt, you know, going Heil Pelosi. And so it's it's just depends on where their little allegiances go to in the in the shareholder activism sphere. You know, it was NVIDIA last week. She was in Taiwan to save her own shareholder interests. Okay? And that's... I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I honestly, I, I've been curious as to why. Like, I thought it was just purely political, Mm-mm. but I didn't understand there was something, uh, uh, there was economics behind it. Um, yeah, she and her husband own, own 100 million shares of NVIDIA, like, semiconductor stock. Right. Right. Okay, that's been in the news for a couple of weeks. I've definitely mentioned it. Someone, other, someone else mentioned it on, on the program. But this is just one of a cascade of these, you know, septuagenarians who happen to have been in Congress for more than 10 years who've just helped themselves to the nice, you know, all-you-can-eat bar uh, of Citizens United. Okay? Yep. And yep. Uh, they, they, <laughs> that's all. I have to wrap this up, unfortunately. Nate, I mean, it's just been such a great conversation. I want you to come back again. We're going to do it again between 7 and 8, mostly. Um, every night, this is 100 Days of Colin. I think this is day 80, 89. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow at this time. Th- thanks, everybody, for joining. Uh, we got to wrap it up right now. But um, Thank you. we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks, Sheila. Thanks. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the...